0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Paul Zach, who is the head of the Center for Neuroeconomic Studies at Claremont Graduate University, also the author of a couple books. This one most recently, it's called Trust Factor. The Science of Creating High-Performance Companies. And also, this was preceded by a book called The Moral Molecule, which is really all about oxytocin. Now, in this last book, you didn't spend as much time talking about hormones, neurotransmitters, and so forth, but they do make an appearance. This book really is all about culture and what makes for a corporate culture that promotes success. And you've got a formula, a fairly simple formula, right, which is around joy which is built on trust and purpose. And, you know, I think right now all of us are kind of obsessed with culture. I teach a course called The Future of, of Work. I've been teaching this for the last five, six years or so, and we talk a lot about corporate culture. You know, you start as an economist, and then you start getting into all this neuroscience, and now you're really deep in, into culture. And I was wondering if you could tell me, does it make sense, all these different interests, right? How the economics, the neuroscience, culture, right? Do you see these as different phases in your intellectual life? Or do you see this as part of a a unified vision of how humans interact in organizations and societies? That's a great question,
1: man. I've done a zillion podcasts. No one's ever thought of that. Good question. Um, so I say, Greg, I essentially, I'm a tool guy. I really like making tools and those tools are driven by solving problems. Um, so the early work on oxytocin was really understanding why in biology and economics and lots of other fields, the presumption was that humans uh, live in a world that's red in tooth and claw, and cooperation just happens by accident somehow, or by some mistake.
0: Or it happens as a result of, you know, reciprocal ultra tit for tat. You know, there's a lot of game theoretic explanations for, you know, why people might find it in their self interest to, to cooperate, right? Right. But in fact, we find much further that the human brain uh, has the anatomy, of a
1: social creature in which uh, we bias ourselves towards cooperation in almost all settings. And of course, the interesting part of that is what does almost mean, right? What are the factors that, again, I'm a mechanism guy, so what are the neurologic factors that inhibit or promote cooperative behaviors, understanding underlying neurochemical and uh, neuroelectrical drivers of those, those behaviors? And so, you know, from a very practical perspective, I just want to predict what these really interesting uh, species called humans are doing because I'm a Martian. I don't really understand the humans, and so I got to run experiments to find what they're doing. And and if you ask them, as you know, hey, why did you make this decision? You no, know, the the answer is eh, it doesn't seem like the thing to do, right? So you can't really build a theory around that. So even starting in my dissertation work from the University of Pennsylvania, I was always trying to build in these biological foundations for human decision making. And to do that, I had to build tools that let me do that. So the oxytocin stuff came about because. I built a protocol to measure the human brain's acute production of oxytocin without drilling into the skull, which is what they did in animals. So once you have that tool, then there's so many questions you can ask. So I'm getting to the question you really asked me. So what I found was that, you know, I'm a very cheap person and neuroscience is expensive. And so people, you know, I would get some media attention and people would come to my lab and say, Hey, we heard, you know, something about this or that. And then some level you know, executives came to the lab and they said, Hey, we hear you're some kind of expert on uh, trust. We think trust in our business is really important. Can you tell me how we could measure it? I said, sure. I have this, this uh, assay. I take blood twice. And, then, and they're like, yeah, you know, they would turn white. And I go, no, I don't know. There must be some general rules. And then, you know, like all, all kind of good science, you know, go, oh man, I suck. How can I not know the general rules for creating a culture of high trust if I know about trust at the country level, trust at the individual level, this whole band I'm missing, which is on thin organizations. And so I just said, I don't really know, but could I come into your business and poke around and maybe run some experiments? And that's what we did. We started running experiments in the lab, looking at culture. We started running experiments in for-profits and nonprofits, And then eventually developed this, this tool that allowed us to scale that up and then look at these behaviors associated with neurologic uh, activation that told us that you were in this culture in which you were getting essentially reciprocal oxytocin release that told your brain, "Oh, I'm in this trusted group of individuals." So I think you know uh, one of the interesting things. You know, I'm an economics apostate at this point. So you know, I think this bill of goods we've been sold, which is, as the kids say, "Work sucks," so I have to pay you, right? So the disutility of labor. That's a very old idea in economics. For a lot of us, work is really enjoyable right? You're doing this, right? How much are you getting paid for this? Not really clear, right? I'm getting paid zero. You're getting, I don't know, maybe you have advertisers, right? So why would we do this? Yeah, I'm getting negative. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Could be doing something else. No, but we do things because we love them. And if you can create that environment in which, as you said, we have purpose and around people that I can rely on, that I trust, then it's like the super sauce for creating high-performance cultures and organizations. And then the implication of the neuroscience contra the economics is that Work becomes really fun. I'm doing something hard that's important with cool people around me. Man, that sounds like I could do that every day.
0: I know, I think you referenced Chris Rock. You know, he was washing dishes before he became a comedian and he said, the day went very slowly when he was washing dishes and it goes really quickly when he's, you know, doing his career work. But I I want to drill into the kind of the proximate mechanisms, right? So if you're an evolutionist and you look at something like cooperative behavior, right? So you talk about Vernon Smith's experiments and talk about trust game, right, which is sort of the the seminal way of measuring trust, right, where you have people who are handing money over to another person, the money triples, and then they kind of hope that they get something back, right, and economists would say that no one would ever advance any money, and then the other person would never give any back, but we see violations of this all the time, and so if you're an evolutionary biologist, you would come up with some functional reason, right, some kind of final cause, right, or distant cause, and that would be it, or maybe you know you would do some kind of behavioral experiments and say, "Okay, let's just manipulate some you know external features and see what changes in the behavior." but you're very interested in kind of the proximate mechanism, you're very interested in the what are the kind of hormones that we're seeing at work here, and you know you're oftentimes careful sometimes careful to not use cause as you know you causal language because we you know there's a lot of correlations and stuff going on here, but why is that so interesting, right? Why did you find that interesting? Do we need to kind of understand the mechanisms that are happening inside our brains in order to really understand the phenomenon? That's, again, a really good science question. Um, I'm going to answer that, but I want to
1: critique your premise. You said violations of what economists think you should do. I reject that completely. So I'm a humanist. I'm a behavioralist. What humans do 99% 99% of the time, every, every, I've been in, I don't know, 50 countries. And all those countries, including field work in Papua New Guinea, is people default to cooperation. So the default is cooperation. And so if we get and we look at the neuroanatomy, what we find is that our brains look like other social species. That is, we're a group species. So putting us together at work, in play, is completely natural. We do not survive alone. Very few hermits are flourishing, right? Very few that are, are just oddballs. So we're a group creature. We like to be together. Now, together doesn't mean it's not going to be- There are f-
0: a lot of them in economics departments.
1: Yeah, so so again, I can tell you the evolutionary story behind that, but increasingly, I don't care about hypotheses. I'm more interested in prediction. So I just really want to figure out what what the humans are doing. And if I can do that and generate data from those humans- um, not just behavioral data, but mechanistic data allows me to predict out of sample that I need to know proximate mechanisms, right? So let me give you a concrete example of that, or, or maybe two examples if I can. One is that work we've been doing for the last uh, I don't know, 12, 13 years, funded by DARPA and a bunch of other uh, later agencies, of the US government, we now use multiple neuroscience measurement uh, devices, high-density EEG, peripheral neurologic measures, blood draws, and we put these in a big blender. And we say, I don't really care if this region was 2% more active than this region in your brain. What I care about is predictive accuracy. Could I take these multiple data streams and then put them through a filter? And that filter usually is a kind of statistical robustness. And then take those data together and ask, how accurately can I predict what people are going to do after this experience? Right. That's, to me, a really interesting practical question. And then I can go back and ask, under what conditions do these mechanisms of the brain activate or are they inhibited, right? And and we've done a lot of work in that area as well. So that moves us into a a lot of interesting areas. So a lot of work going on in psychiatry now, right? So psychiatric patients are not uh, behaving in ways that we would expect. And therefore, some of these promoting or inhibiting mechanisms are um, really quite active. That in that uh, interact with what we would normally see as appropriate cooperative or social behaviors. And so that's weird, right? So now also i have an appointment in a psychiatry department because I want to generate bioassays for psychiatric disorders because your clinical evaluation is biased, just like all self-reports are, because you can be tired or hungry or you don't like the way the person looks. I just want to get away from the humans making poor decisions. Again, because I'm a cheap bastard and uh, you'd rather just have a, a tool I can put that tool into the block and open it up. So does that make sense? So I'm very promiscuous in what I work on. Once you have a tool, you can be very promiscuous.
0: Right, and I think, you know, you talk about in both books, your experiences doing blood draws in a wide range of environments, including, as you say, New Guinea. That experience, right, was pretty interesting. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about it, but you spend a lot of time talking about oxytocin, of course, but you also talk about cortisol, and you also talk a lot about testosterone. And, you know, one of the things that I found interesting is that testosterone and oxytocin, that sometimes they kind of are correlated and sometimes they're, you know, at odds with one another. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk about that. In particular, I think there was an example used when this, you know, rugby team, you went in there and measured. And first of all, was it any different getting blood from the rugby team and getting blood from the New Guinea folks doing their ritual? Was this, I mean, why would anybody want to stop practicing for their rugby game and then come over and get a blood draw but in those environments you talk about how there's a bonding mechanism that's happening around the same time as potentially a conflict mechanism right uh where the former is the oxytocin and the latter is, is the testosterone and then you used examples when you were you know doing hang gliding i guess it was or you know what are you jumping out of planes right so could you talk a bit about that yeah so again there's no one-to-one mapping
1: uh from from neurochemicals uh or activity to behavior, right? So these are network effects, and what what we're doing here is we're picking out uh, kind of large drivers of those behavioral effects. So they don't work alone. So that's that's the key issue. So your brain is uh, living in a soup of about two hundred neurochemicals, and those are changing sometimes at millisecond frequency to help the organism survive and adapt to its environment. So again, we're going to pick big targets so I can get you know as much explanatory power as I can. I think you know rugby is a great example. So yeah, the easiest blood draws in the world, guys with giant veins, right? Draw blood with my eyes closed. I do these experiments because they're ethologically valid, right? They're they're not this this sterile laboratory setting in which I'm scripting what I want you to do, and you can do A or B. Um, and this is, you know, hey, let's do a workout. We're going to draw blood before and after, and then maybe ask you some questions or observe you in some way. Uh, same thing with Papua New Guinea. The whole point of that was to go in the rainforest with indigenous people haven't interacted with the Western world and actually just let them do what they're doing and try to capture what their brain's doing. Otherwise, again, because I'm trying to make out of sample predictions, I don't have confidence that I can predict outside of, you know, educated Western individuals. Um, So, yeah, so testosterone, high levels of testosterone, which uh, are associated with with aggression and competition, um, tends to inhibit that uh, uh, cooperative uh, motivation you get from oxytocin. Although moderate increases in testosterone um, are, uh, you know, correlate positively with oxytocin levels. So again, brain's always working on changes here. These are really changes. So the the implication, like for people running organizations is if I do a Jack Welch rank and yank, I am generating in-group competition. That's going to be a high testosterone. That's super motivating, except that's going to inhibit cooperation within my organization. So even Jack, before he died, said, the essence of management 2.0 is trust, right? He understood that Rank and Yank. These people already got in GE. They've already been trained. They're already well motivated. Don't pit them against each other. That makes no sense at all, right? Uh, Google stopped doing this a long time ago as well. Um, so what we really want to do is, is have outgroup competition, testosterone. I want to be driven, testosterone associated with drive, and in-group cooperation. So just to put a point on that, when we run experiments and we administer synthetic testosterone or placebo, um, to people, what we find is that individuals with these very high, so supra physiologic doses, um, become over-optimistic, uh, super self-reliant, selfish, right? It's all about me. All right. So if, if, uh, someone listening, you know, once an organization and, um, you know, you walk into your next meeting in the $5,000 Armani suit, everyone else is wearing a polo shirt. Right, you've just engaged in what I call a dominance display. You just said, "I own you, I am better than you, right? I am not part of you." Versus uh, Jim Simigal, who started um, Costco, who every day of his working life, as CEO, wore that sl- short sleeve white shirt with a name tag that said Jim, you know, and he was back there, you know, moving boxes and talking to the employees and talking to the customers. Whole, you know, who do you want to work harder for? The, sorry, the kind of jerky guy in the $5,000 suit that thinks he's God's gift to the world, or Jim Senegal, who's like, man, let's just get
0: this thing done. Well, and I think the hope or the aspirations of this research into these proximate mechanisms is that, you know, there might be a shortcut, right? Maybe you know, we can, through the administration of things like oxytocin or testosterone or cortisol in some way, you know, get to the result that we're looking for, not looking for without having to go through the process of creating it through the, you know, external environment. wasn't that sort of the hope. I mean, I think, you know, No,
1: no, no, I don't think so. No, hugs, not drugs. I don't want to drug people at work, but I do want to look at mechanisms. So now I want to work backwards. So I get the question. So if I know that testosterone inhibits cooperation, right, then what I want to do is create an environment within my organization in which I want that out-group, uh competition. So again, competition does a whole bunch of things besides raise testosterone, increases that
0: cortisol and other uh, arousal. So, so we can't skip the haka, right? We can't just give everybody a little shot of testosterone and say, hey, we don't need to do the haka anymore. We can just go directly into battle with a pill, right? Yeah, you need the haka. That's yeah, exactly right. So
1: um, again because the the brain's own system is so much more refined and surgical so when we drug people we really sledgehammer them so endogenous oxytocin is active in the brain for about three minutes when we give you a drug it's 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 just on for like four hours right i don't want to leave that cooperation mode on in case you know you need to be in a competitive mode for example or aggressive mode so you know the brain is again this very finely tuned system so um yeah so that gets us to causation right if i if i do a uh blinded drug study that I have causal evidence that I can induce more of this particular behavior by changing this neurochemical so I get to real causation and then again I think the point of the of the uh, trust factor book is then to reverse engineer that and ask okay if I know these are mechanisms how might I get them how might I create an environment where I get them so get a co- concrete example I you know talk about in the book is recognition programs so let's now inform those from neuroscience so we know from neuroscience from my lab and others that recognition programs that are close in time to when a a, um, goal has been met or exceeded um, is more effective. It's more effective when it comes from peers. It's more effective when it's unexpected, when it's personal, uh, when it's done publicly. I mean, so that's all the kind of stuff that comes out of the science, but because we know the mechanism there behind uh, reinforcing particular behaviors in the brain, particularly driven by dopamine, that I I want to activate this system now behaviorally as opposed to, uh, you know, giving you cocaine.
0: Right, and I think this is what you call neuromanagement, right? So do you think that managers need to understand these mechanisms? I mean, it seems like most of the people you discuss in the book who are doing a pretty good job of creating a culture of trust, they're not knowledgeable about kind of the neurological mechanisms. They're not really aware of, you know, what's happening in the brain. They're just aware of what they see in their organizations. Do you think that it's worthy of, a bit of education, do you think that we should be thinking about maybe incorporating a little bit of neuroscience into say the business curriculum? Maybe even if only as a tiny bit of our organizational behavior classes, should people be aware of these mechanisms or can you just bypass them and just say, look, here are the results if you take these actions? I mean, how can we benefit from understanding the mechanisms at that level? No one has to. And I think um,
1: the reason to look at mechanisms is that there are great leaders uh, like Doug who took Trader Joe's National, uh, John Mackey of Whole Foods, who just have a great intuitive sense of how to build cultures, how to interact with people. Um, And then others I talk about in the book, like Michael Bale from Dell Computer, who is just an abject failure from a social perspective and really needed an executive coach to get better. Um, So again, if I want to be a great leader in my family, uh, you know, at my business, uh, in my lab, whatever, um, if I know the mechanism then, and I have some advice on how to activate that, then I can just be more efficient. So again, I'm a super practical guy. I just want to solve these practical problems. Like these companies that came to us and asked us how to build trust in their organizations. Like, give me the checklist. Like here, are, here's a bunch of examples I can do that some people have intuitively discovered, but again, it wastes resources to do the guess and verify, right? If I guess this and, oh, it worked out, oh, cool. But if I know the mechanisms, I can be much more efficient about it. So
0: again, it all comes back to me being a cheap bastard. <laughs> well, you've got a bunch of well-described tips, right? You used the oxytocin acronym. We'll, we'll jump into that. But before we do that, you know, there are so many organizations that lack trust, right? I mean, you describe in the book some cases where you, you would wander into these organizations and they seemed, you know, profoundly dysfunctional. How do we explain that? I mean, is it just that these leaders have a distorted view of human nature? Is it that they've just settled into a dysfunctional pattern of behavior? You know, why is it that that so many organizations are dysfunctional? I mean, I've seen it in my own life and different organizations that I've been a part of, where, you know, there isn't that trust and everybody's kind of in a fearful state of mind and no one really knows what's coming down the road and there's not a lot of appreciation. There's not a lot of openness. And, you know, how does that happen? Yeah,
1: it's a good question. I um, mean, yeah, I think uh, it's like the uh, quote on, you know, unhappy uh, families, every happy families, was that Tolstoy or something? Every happy family is happy in the same way, but a happy families have their own ideology. Um, so I think that happens. So one is that we're social creatures. And so we tend to mimic what we see leaders doing consciously or unconsciously. And so, uh, I certainly had, uh, the the yelling boss, which I dislike a lot. Uh, but when I worked in in companies that the the guy's a screamer, everyone starts screaming, right? That's, that's what our behavior is. And like, you know, like you, I'm a hard worker, man, give me a task. I will nail it. Don't be screaming at me. Like that's some issue you have. Like, don't, uh, you don't need to scream at me. It doesn't help me at all. It just pisses me off. Um, so anyway, I think one of that is, is we're following the leader of the boss. Number one, number two. As I said, when we opened, I think we've been sold this bill of goods in which, um, you know, work is awful. And if I don't monitor you all the time, uh, then you're just going to slack off. Uh, And I think, you know, telecommuting pre-COVID lockdowns, but even certainly from COVID, we understood that people actually work longer hours when they work from home. Um, Almost everybody, uh, if you're privileged enough to be able to work from home. Um, and so that tells us about a lot of self motivation. So in the book, and you know, we're finding a lot of companies that have high, high trust have very flat, um, uh, leadership structures, right? Not a lot of layers of management, um, uh, much more uh, employees have much more control over their work lives. Um, they have, they get the chance to exhibit discretionary effort, right? So I don't need to tell you to put more effort in. You want to do it because we're, again, we're doing cool stuff and what I'm doing with people who depend on me and I depend on them. I want to let those people down. So again, the same thing you see this is very well known, but you see this, you know, with soldiers in combat. Who are you fighting for? United States of America? No, the, the seven guys in my fire team. Like, I can't let these guys down. So imagine creating a workplace where you're so tight with those people and your mission is so clear to you. that you're like, oh man, I, I, you know, I want to get up at, at five in the morning and work on this because I'm just turned on by it.
0: Yeah, but a lot of the companies that you point to as kind of leaders in this area, Google and and Zappos and so forth. I mean, they're pretty rigorous when it comes to recruiting, right? I mean, they don't just let any old person into the organization. And so, you know, they're less likely to wind up with the slackers, right? That you might get in an organization that is indiscriminate in its hiring. And I'm thinking, you know, in the military, When we had the draft, it was a different kind of environment than it is today. I mean, today, they can be extremely selective. And so they can have a management style that is, you know, much more trusting and which is a much better place to work, I think, than it was, say, during the Vietnam War, right? Where, yeah, of course, you know, people were slacking, right? And a lot of people didn't want to go into combat, but they didn't have a choice. They didn't volunteer for this, right? And so, you know, in in one of the quotes that you have in the book, which I really liked was, you know, all employees are volunteers isn't that really sort of a time and place specific? I mean, if you can't be careful in terms of your curation, are you able to still have a workplace that is one of trust? I'm going to say, you know, the Numi story is amazing and fantastic because they didn't really, you know, change the workers that much. And yet they've managed to get this radical difference in culture. But is that the exception or can we do this with anybody?
1: I, I, it's a really good question. And I, I don't think there's a cut and dried answer on that. I do think we can get better at this. And I think what I think about trust about human performance is employees want it and organizations benefit from it. So it's a really nice win-win space. As you know, in the data, you know, people work in high trust organizations get sick less, uh, you know, they retain their jobs more, they enjoy their jobs more. They recommend, uh, their place of business to friends and family to work there. So all these good things. Uh, and when you, I was at Starbucks a couple of days ago, and this uh, woman helped me and she just was wonderful. And she smiled and she couldn't be nicer. I said, man, you just made my day. Like, you you love your job. That's what we really want. So, you know, pre-COVID, there was certainly a labor shortage and that's going on around the world. Um, I mean, the great resignation right now, we are dying for good people. So the number of high performers is scarce and the number of overall performers is scarce. So let's create an environment where they can flourish and they can perform at their best. They have the freedom and accountability to do what they love to do. Once they're trained, give them some discretion, let them make mistakes, let them learn, let them innovate. And that's the way to sustain long-term, you know, profit growth. So it's not the micromanagement, you know, kind of old-fashioned Hawthorne works, you know, break everything down into little micro things. So again, there, are probably some organizations or some some types of industries in which you still have very detailed work, but even assembly line work is basically done by robots. So where humans are going to flourish and we're going to survive is on that creative work, on doing stuff that requires passion, requires waking up. At, I love when I wake up at four in the morning, thinking about something. My my brain just goes, "Oh man, this is going to be cool." Wake the hell up, man! Go sleep. Let's get on this thing. What's better than that? You know what? A, what a gift that is from. The, the work gods to have something that is so interesting that it wakes you up because you want to
0: do it. But I mean, we, we live in a world where we have this luxury of different types of work that allow us to flourish. But, you know, we're stuck sometimes with managers who still think they're on the galleys, right? right? Yeah, exactly
1: right. And I think, again, there's real pushback from that. So they, either those managers have to go or the employees are going to leave. And either way, you know, you're going to force change. So I think you know, one of the things I'm, the companies I'm talking to currently is really getting people to come back to the office. And so some companies have said, like Apple and Google, Jan 1, you need to be in the office five days a week. And where do the employees go? No,
0: we're
1: not going to do it, right? Talent is one here. So now let's think about a way to facilitate this. So I worked with a, just recently, a very large hedge fund in Chicago that you would know. And they really want everyone back in the office. And when they look at it, when they, when they put this out, People there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they tend not to come to the office Mondays and Fridays, which kind of makes sense. So we talked about lots of ways to make the office more of a social cultural hub where you want to be there, right? You're getting that social benefit. Yeah, there's a commute. That's a pain in the butt. And yeah, you got that guy two buildings over who always wants to come and waste your time and talk to you about something. But the benefit is you're bumping into people, you're getting that ideation. You're getting that energy from being around the other humans. Like, remember when, you know, lockdown was over and you could actually go out to a restaurant and like, oh my God, this is so much fun to hang our have happy hour. This is super fun. Like the humans are cool to be around. So, you know, I think that's what we have to do is kind of create that environment where, um yeah, it's hard. Anything, you know, effortful, uh you know, is going to be tiring, right? And that's okay. But if it's effort put towards a greater good, and I certainly make a point in the book that all business, all of Peter Drucker and Edward Stemming, is about service. It's about improving people's lives in some way. And once you embrace that transcendent purpose of your organization, like, oh, we're doing stuff to improve life for humans, right? And I want to do it really well because those humans need a better life, right? We all want better lives. And it's okay that they pay for that, it's, but it's, it's a really a sacred duty in my view to create an amazing customer experience. But that starts with creating a great employee experience.
0: Well, I mean, you are at Claremont Graduate University, which is where Peter Drucker was. And in, in a lot of ways, you're following in his footsteps, right? And he you know, famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think you would certainly agree with that. Let's walk through some of these key planks in the oxytocin framework. I want to start with the ovation. And I think a lot of the lessons about kind of managing a workplace probably extend to managing a family. Right. So, for instance, this idea of ovation of of giving people you know recognition when well when they deserve it, right, and not indiscriminately. <laughs> you don't give everybody a ribbon for finishing in last place, right? But you do actually recognize people. I find that organizations tend to not do this simply because they're just too busy. In the same way that maybe we fail to send thank you notes or wish people happy birthdays just because we're too busy. Is this the kind of thing that you could just automate? I mean, is there a way to just automate, you know, recognitions. So everybody gets the benefit of it without having to do all the work? Probably. I mean, you know, now with birthdays, it's all on my calendar. So I don't know anybody's
1: like phone numbers. I don't know phone numbers anymore because it's in my phone. So certainly you could put, you know, hey, Greg's six-month project is done December 29th. Make sure, you know, I, I can preload a card. But again, it, it's better if it's personal. So um, I spent a lot of time uh, at Zappos, an online shoe and clothing seller, and they let me put a lot of their data into the book, which is super cool. One thing they did at, at Zappos was they have these so-called Zappos dollars where you can give them to another colleague who's helped you. And But the key was you have to put a note in there and why. right? It's that thank you note, as you said. So it's not just that I'm going to put $10 in your account. It's because I had a problem, a customer on the phone, and you picked it up and you made them so happy and relieved my stress. And you're just so cool to do that. Thank you. Oh, okay. So I do feel like you know what we're talking about is what we learned in kindergarten. Say please and thank you. Share with the people around you. It's actually not that hard, right? So, um, what well, was it, Drucker, who said you know good manners is the secret to good management? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, famous famous thing where he's very old and he's in an MBA class and someone said, "What's the secret to good management?" And he and if you knew Peter Drucker, you know his Austrian accent and he, and he would take time to answer, which is very interesting. So he paused, you know, this is kind of pregnant pause and the whole class is sitting there with, what, what will the master say? Good manners. Oh, isn't that great? So again, if you're a high performer, you are, I am, other people, ask me. Don't demand. Ask me. I will, I will knock your freaking socks off. But you're going to ask me because I got other things I'm doing. Right. So if um, you say, Hey, Paul, I could really use your help on this. It's super important because our clients need this. Awesome. Let me move my schedule around. Let me make that happen, right? So that's a different story than, you know, God damn it, we're behind schedule and you it. like, dude, relax, right? It's okay. I'll get up early. I'll stay up late. I don't care. I'll get it done. Don't be putting uh, like emotional states on me. Like, you know, I know you're stressed out. Having said that, you asked about the necessity of neuroscience. I think one of the key takeaways that I've learned that certainly is in the book is colloquially, people are weird right? Which means we have good days and bad days, right? So, you know, if if you've always been a great colleague and and always interact with me in a nice way, and then one day you come in and you're just a total jerk, right? A lot of us jump to this fundamental attribution error and go, oh yeah, I was sure Greg was a bad guy. But what the neuroscience shows is that you're probably a good person having a bad day, right? You got a car accident the other way to work, your dog died, whatever. But if I think neurologically about this and go, oh, I have, a hundred observations of interacting with you that are all positive and i got one that's negative right? i shouldn't overweight that one negative just because it happened today right? i should look at the history of that and so again that's really i really built really a more than a tolerance and acceptance for psychiatric patients having been around a lot of them now and just you know human life like things happen it's okay and so again if you're a manager and you've got someone who you know occasionally has an outburst or whatever Again, from my thinking, you should go, first of all, they're, they're stressed out. Something's going on. So what you don't want to do is, uh, you know, stress them out more by yelling at them or whatever, let them resolve. And so, you know, do that critique in private the next day. Hey, so like you had a bad day yesterday. What happened? Oh man, I was losing it yesterday. Yeah. Was I cranky to people? Yeah. You were super cranky. Oh geez. I got to go apologize to my assistant, to my teammates, whatever. Different story than, you know, you're having a bad day and I accelerate it. So here's a concrete example Uh, when my kids were little, when I sort of learned the neuroscience of human connection, I realized that the timeout that, you know, all the modern parents do with their children is the worst thing biologically for children. So you're having a bad day. And so your parent says, we don't want you to be around us as a social creature. We want to isolate you. That's even more stressful. So I created the time in, which is you're having a bad day. You have to sit in my lap for as many minutes as you are old and just relax, right? So that's what you've got to do to get over this, um, you know, little stressor that you're having. The beautiful part about that is that my kids loved it when they were little. And when they got to be teenagers, like, oh my God, will you do this when my friends are over? I'm like, yes, I will. I'll do it in private. But if you're freaking out and you're 13 and your friends are here, yeah, you're going to sit in the bedroom with me for 13 minutes. We're just going to chill out. You don't have to talk. I'm just going to hold you for 13 minutes. Isn't that? I mean, you know, metaphorically, it's that you want at work. You're having a bad day at work. You don't want someone to go buck up, man. What's wrong with you guy? Uh, do you know, tough it out? You want someone to go, oh man, you must be having a bad day. What can I do to help you? Imagine your manager who said that, right? So, or, you know, you, you've been up all night with a sick kid or whatever, and you come to work and you look like hell, I'm like, man, do you need to be here? Can you check in with your team? Go home and get some sleep, come back tomorrow. Right. Or work from home or whatever like then that's a place I want to stay working at, right? So one of the best predictors we found for effective cultures is a low turnover. So, um, you know, it's very well known that most people do not leave jobs for more money they leave because they just can't stand where they're working and can't stand really means the culture, the humans, the way humans interact. That's what culture is.
0: Yeah. And and hopefully we can talk about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation and kind of how economists tend to kind of get it wrong in a lot of ways. But before we do that, I mean, I think one of the reasons why understanding the proximate causes is useful is that it helps with kind of hypothesis generation, right? So when we think about this ovation, if we understand dopamine and how it works, then kind of unexpected praise is more rewarding than kind of expected praise, right? And so in many ways, if you give people these Intermittent rewards, right? Or, you know, you surprise them with some kind of praise or recognition, you're going to get a bigger bang for your buck, so to speak, right? And so that may be why the non monetary rewards also kind of have a bigger impact than monetary rewards. Now, to an economist, it shouldn't matter, right? If you give, in fact, to an economist, you know, cash would always be better. But again, economists also think that birthday presents and Christmas are <laughs> a
1: big waste of time, right? Yeah. So again, we, what the data show is people acclimate very quickly to a raise, for example. So um, and, and even work by um, Kathleen Boas at University of Michigan shows that even one-time rewards that people, you know, all of a sudden now I'm monetizing this. It's like going to dinner at your house, Greg. And, and, uh, you know, I, I give you 20 bucks for dinner. You'd be pissed off. Right? Like, Hey, I invite you over because I like you because I want to hang out. You want to pay me, right? Like, Oh, this is awesome. Here's a tip. Um, right. So I think we want to, or I make an argument in the book that we should separate out pay from these other recognition factors that I, I don't want to confound those two things. And, um, a lot of organizations now have just very simple levels, different levels of pay, not too many. They're very transparent about it. And so if the company does well, or your team does well, everyone gets the 5% raise, whatever. And so we're, we're maintaining that team basis, right? So if you, we talked about rugby, if you rugby. You don't get individual medals, whatever, your team won, right? So that's what we should be doing in organizations. The team should be winning and you should be part of that winning team and be recognized as part of that. Now, if you scored the winning goal, yeah, I certainly want to recognize you because I want to set aspirations for other people. That's why ovation done in public is also more powerful, right? Because now I'm saying in my community, in my family of individuals in our organization, because that's what we do, we make these little families um, I really value high performers, even introverts like me like to be recognized. So I'm going to recognize this high performer because he or she went above and beyond. And as I say in the book, also that ovation ceremony is an opportunity to share best practice, right? So how did you do this? Oh yeah, I was working on this thing and whatever this thing is, and I had all kinds of problems. And I've been to hundreds of these uh, ovation ceremonies because I've orchestrated shared lots of them. And inevitably the person recognized will say, oh, it wasn't just me. Oh, Sue helped me and Bob helped me. And I really got in trouble. Then Jim stepped in. And so all of a sudden it becomes their team recognition, even though that one person is being recognized because maybe he or she led the team or whatever. Um, So, you know, again, for most of us who are psychologically healthy, we realize that work is not done individually and that other people have helped us. We generally recognize them.
0: Yeah. And it's always a puzzle to me why organizations don't, appreciate this, right? They don't understand it. I mean, organizations are, are run by people and they should have some inside perspective on how people work, right? But it's it's relatively inexpensive to kind of recognize people. And, you know, the idea of trusting people, it typically pays off, right? So I've been in organizations where, you know, nobody asks you for things. They just go and assume you're never going to give it to them. And so they, they do some kind of workaround and it would just be so much easier if they just came to you and said, hey, you know, we know you're a contributor and, you know, would really appreciate it if you would do this. And instead, you know, there's this lack of trust. So trust begets trust. So how do you jumpstart trust within, within an organization? Does it have to always start from the top? I mean, is it always about the, you know, CEO creating a culture of trust? Certainly in Microsoft, I mean, it really kind of had to happen, you know, with the CEO, But but if you're someone who's lower down in the organization, can you just kind of build a culture of trust with your team and then hope it kind of percolates upward or, you know, laterally, or will that inevitably cause you to conflict or clash with the rest of the organization if it's one that that's more Machiavellian?
1: Yeah, I, it, it can be both. I mean, um, some of the companies I highlight in the book, like SAS Institute, big software maker, um, Jim Goodnight, who started the company, still CEO, said, you know, our company absolutely runs on trust. So right from the top, right, we're all about trust. And they do that in lots of ways, from telecommuting to um, they have 36-hour work weeks. Right? They want, actually want, don't want you to overdo it, so you get burnt out. They have extraordinary low turnover for a software company. But lots of examples in the book and you know outside the book of small groups that just build their own trusting organization. So uh, it's long enough ago that I can now, uh, I think the NDA has expired. But uh, in the book, I talk about some organizations uh, that I don't name. One of those, I got to work with AIG on their turnaround. Uh, you know, largest largest uh, bailout in U.S. history um, during the, the Great Recession, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and um, amazing place. But they had very poor internal uh, employee kind of programs to really develop employees, let them grow, let them have a chance. It's a highly regulated right, highly regulated industry, so they have to be very careful. Uh, and so to to come in with a team of individuals, I was a contractor, I didn't work there, but to come in with a, with you know people who are just specialized on creating. High performance cultures, creating a culture of service, getting a culture of connection, and then advising them uh, to the little bit I did. Amazing experience that this company turned around. And again, for listeners who haven't seen the data, you know, within two years, they paid back the government in full, uh, with interest, uh, very profitable company still. But they really had this kick in the pants to change the culture. And it started with those employees. And um, uh, the CEO finally turned them around. Actually, a wonderful book called "Good for the Money," which I recommend. Uh, he died on the job. He, he pulled him out of retirement, and he worked, and he got cancer, and he basically died. Uh, but you know, he said, "Never one. We've got to take care of employees because we're not going to take care of our clients unless our employees feel like this is a great place to work." And if you remember, you know, these people would have you know tomatoes thrown at their door, and people yelling at them, and you caused, you caused me economy to crash. And you know, things are not so cut and dried as that. So first of all, let's make these employees feel proud and empowered because they work at AIG. Um, and then, you know, go from there. Um, anyway, that was AIG where I'm, I don't mention their name, but um, yes, superstars. These people are very high performers, but as you said, Greg, their view was that the people that their direct reports were not as high performers, right? Otherwise you'd be an executive. That's not true, right? There's all kinds of reasons why you wouldn't want to be an executive. Uh, I wouldn't want to be a CEO. it sounds like the worst job in the world to me, Oh man, the stress, never being home. You know, so anyway, uh, you know, it's just, it's not my thing. It's not, it's not what I want to do. So um, I think, again, we should really embrace behavioral diversity. We're certainly pro, you know, ethnic, cultural diversity. Let's assess, you know, neurologic and behavioral diversity that um, there are a lot of amazing people I've met who are happy at middle management or happy in those jobs they're doing or happy working at Starbucks. God bless them. That's great. If you dig that and they support your lifestyle, you're a human being, right? You're, so uh, as you know, in the book, my my pet peeve term is human capital. Who, who, do you know who uh, coined that term, human capital? Could have been Gary Becker, must be older than that. Who did that? Oh, it
0: wasn't, was it Gary Becker? It's gotta be older, you know?
1: it oh, gotta be older. Is Gary Becker? I think it's just a terrible term. That's so mechanistic, right? You're a human being, not a piece of human capital. Like human resources
0: either. That, that
1: <laughs> No, God, no. You're a human being. So anyway, yeah, like, you know, Google, you know, people ops, people dev, I think that's much better, right? This is a development process. And, and, you know, I make a case in the book that we should, we mean people run organizations and I run a couple, I run a lab, I ran my department. I have a software company. So I, you know, I'm in multiple organizations. The goal of those is to be invested in these high performing individuals, all individuals, and we hope that they're all high performing as individuals. Not as a human resource or piece of human capital. Um, And so I tell stories of many of my students who have worked at Google and Facebook, and then they want to come back and, you know, I have an academic position and I get to collaborate with them. Or I got a guy at Google that I can work with, right, on some project, right? How cool is that? So, you know, I think whenever people want to leave, I'm invested in the person, not in the position, right? So you want to leave because you Google offer your job. Awesome for you.
0: Also good for me, right? I know a guy at Google. So, you know, there's a win win. Space there. Well, I mean, we've seen HR departments be renamed, employee experience departments, people ops, et cetera. But you know, you propose the human development department, right? And again, an economist would be very wary because they'd say, wait, you know, you're gonna invest all these resources in making someone a better employee for someone else. Instead of investing in firm specific human capital, which is valuable only to the employer, you're gonna actually, you know, give them a set of skills that make it easier for them to go elsewhere. This seems kind of suicidal for the, for the organization. And yet the most successful organizations, they seem to do this. Is that because I mean, at the end of the day, that that's how you attract people. You know, you offer them this non-pecuniary benefit from being part of the organization, right? And what a better signal of trust, right? I'm investing in
1: you on the expectation that you'll reciprocate. And that's exactly the way our social brain works. Oh man, they just made this huge investment in me. Oh, I can't leave now. I mean, some people will, right? But you didn't want to develop this. And then, you know, i make a case in the book that HR professionals should care about professional development, but also personal development. How's your family? Are your kids happy? Is your spouse happy? And also I call spiritual development, for lack of a better word. Besides work and family, what turns you on? What makes you feel like you're having an impact on the planet, that your life has purpose and meaning? right? And if you don't have time for all three of those aspects, your work life is going to suffer. And the data are very clear on that. So um, uh, I worked with uh, ING Bank uh, in in, uh, the Netherlands for a while. And they talk about sustainability as having three legs. One is profitability. They're not profitable. They're going to go under. Everything else goes. The second is from their uh, employee's perspective. We want to make sure that this is a long-term career for you. And then third, um, they want to be good stewards in their environment. So they want to waste resources. So they have, they've never really talked about this, but they have one day a month. It might be a quarter. I could be wrong on this. It's been a while in which you get paid to volunteer in your in your community as an employee. We'll just pay you and you're gonna do volunteer for eight hours doing something that you think is important. Your kids' school, home. Why don't they talk about that? Because that's a benefit. They think that is gonna help you grow as a human. That's gonna give you a sense of satisfaction. And it's an investment, as you said, Greg, in you as a as a human being, not as a worker bee, right? You're a human and and you know, you work long hours. And you know what? Let's make sure you get some satisfaction from being a member of your community. And that's what social creatures
0: do. So I think it's smart. But but doesn't this also kind of reflect the impoverishment of the rest of our existence? I mean, if we're kind of relying on work to be this purpose-driven organization, and I mean, what about our families and churches and communities and, you know, politics and sports? I mean, you know, work used to be something you go in there, do your job. And then when you left, you had all this other meaningful stuff. I mean, are we now requiring workplaces to be so meaningful because it's a substitute for kind of the deficiency of meaning elsewhere? Or should we look at this as complementary, right? Rather than kind of as a substitute. That's such a deep question. I I think we're seeing this kind of crossing
1: of these these, uh, legs, right? So when work was not focused on meeting where it was much more rote, you did have all a uh, uh, Putnam, you know, bowling leagues and, uh, you know, VFW happy hour or whatever. Um, and when that started going away, I do think um, almost everybody today is a knowledge worker. Everyone's using technology. A janitor is a knowledge worker. And so once we understand that work can be very uh, engaging and, you know, think about even on the weekend, how much time you think, think about work, talk about work, go to happy hour. What
0: do you talk about a happy hour? I mean, Putnam never went to Facebook. I mean, pre-pandemic, if you went to pandemic, I mean, they had all that. I mean, they had, you know, on campus, you never had to leave. I mean, you know, some of the Google folks would park their RVs in the parking lot and and just spend all, they'd do all their yoga there and they'd have their, you know, knitting clubs. And I mean, you never had to leave the campus. Right. And, and, and I think that's good and bad in a way, right? Sure. You probably do want to have a life outside
1: of work or had Facebook, You've been there, right? Everything is a sort of two thirds scale, kind of like Disneyland, so it feels very homey, very comfortable. There are kind of lands, different kind of restaurant types. And so, yeah, you could spend your whole life there. If you're a young person and you'd got transplanted to the Bay Area, absolutely. But at some point, yeah, you do want to build some other aspects of your life and have a sense of a meaning purpose and join a church, join a gym, join a, you know, so I remember when I first got hired at Claremont, um, one of my call- colleagues said, Oh, they have a wonderful gym here. I'm like, Oh no. I'm going to pay to go to a gym off campus. I'm going to spend all my day working with students. I don't want to see students in my off time, right? So I get happy to work with them when I'm at work, but when I'm out of work, I don't want to see them. So, um, but yeah, so I think that's part of the the you know H generation. But I think you're exactly right. I think if we expect uh, work uh, or our CEO or HR professionals to create an environment where I'm getting all of my meaning, I think that's that's setting the bar too high, and I think that's probably not healthy either. On the other hand most of my friends, to be honest, even at our off time, we mostly talk about work, you know, I mean, or, or we do cool stuff like jumping out of airplanes. So that's also
0: fun. So, you know. Well, the last plank of the oxytocin framework is this idea of natural, right? And this is really about being a vulnerable leader, right? And admitting your faults and flaws and being someone who listens and, and, and so forth. Is this like anti-alpha or is this kind of consistent is it a new way of thinking about the alpha description that you gave earlier and since it's so effective in many ways i guess the corollary is you know why do we still have these psychopathic leaders and these machiavellian leaders we see them everywhere is there some kind of vulnerability that organizations have that you know allows these opportunistic folks to kind of rise to the top in so many organizations is that a product of too much trust I mean, do trusting organizations actually have a weak spot, which would enable these folks to kind of get in like cancers and rise to the top? Or does a trusting organization have within itself a, um, you know, an immune system, which spits, spits out the jerks? So I, I'm going to start with
1: the science. I get a very good question, Greg, man, this is just a plus. So first, uh, when your community, uh, when you get a uh, promotion, your community has said, Oh, you, you have leadership skills and in men and women that causes an increase in testosterone, as we discussed earlier, that makes me more self-focused, less empathic, less kind of oxytocin driven connecting. So yeah, all of a sudden now I'm, I'm, um, you know, kind of cock of the walk kind of thing. So, so I think for, again, for leaders, you need to understand that your brain chemistry is changing and you can suppress that. So slow things down allow that prefrontal cortex, allow that emotional control to kick in. Don't just do this kind of knee-jerk thing. Like I talked about Michael Dell was of a screamer and everyone hated working for him. But then he learned, you know, he got coaching. He learned to kind of suppress that because it's not effective for humans. People just leave. And then the second is, if you have to put on this false front, work Greg and home Greg, you're burning a lot of metabolic energy putting on this, this facade every day. And then you're not putting that energy towards creating value for your team, for your organization. So it just burned energy if you can't just be yourself at work. So I think one of the great things about COVID lockdown, this very odd phrase that I just said is this, right? I can work in my t-shirt. I don't need to put on a, um, hope you don't mind, but I don't need to put on a fancy shirt for you. You know, people are aware I'm at home, I'm working from home, my home office, and uh, it's okay, right? So that kind of facade, that very proper. I'm wearing a coat. I, you know, if you know, if I'm if I'm speaking at a corporate event, sure, I'll put a sport coat on. But you know, if I'm working from home, it's not that big of a deal. I'm a human like everybody else, right? My dog was barking a bit ago. We heard the rain. Yeah, things happen. Doesn't mean I'm not going to be effective, right? It just means that we all have little distractions. So, um, so anyway, that's I think that's the science behind this. So, I, I think it's really incumbent on leaders to be very careful, like these super tall people at AIG, that they are getting this this uh, social um, credibility that says, we want you to be um, our leader. We still need leaders as social creatures. And again, sometimes um, I've, done a lot, I've spent a lot of time on sailboats and sometimes on a crisis on a sailboat, whoever's at the helm, even if you're the youngest person, you got to make a call. Like things are going to go bad fast. Most other times we can have a discussion. Hey, you know what? We're hitting a gale. Should we turn around? Should we lower the sail? If, you know, what, what do you, you know? What do you guys think we should do? No, you know, no rush. Let's do it. Uh, so we say, you know what? Um, I've I got a little more experience at the helm than you. Why don't we switch places? Okay, great. That sounds good. But if I'm at the helm, even if I've got very senior people with me, I've got to make a call. So I do need those leaders in those crisis situations. But when you have this high-trust organization where people can self-manage, that leader can offload a lot of that micromanagement and focus on what he or she really is needed for, which is setting strategy, talking to the competition make sure funding's in place, right? All those key things that the, your middle managers and lowers, lower can do. So it's really offloading uh, so that you can put your time and energy into best and highest use. And, uh, and when you have an organization that can run itself, that, that happens. So um, lastly, you know, i make a case in the of the book that you can use the L word at work, right? I can, I can say love in the philia sense, right? I love these people. I am invested in them as human beings. And I really care about them. They care about me and we want this organization to, to keep working. So, um, probably two or three times a week, my software company, immersion neuroscience, I tell people that I love them and they know what I mean. It's not a weird, creepy thing. And I got enough gray hair. It's not weird anyway, right? Like I love you guys. Thank you for working so hard. Like this is, it's been a tough week. We got to make sure that we're still closing deals. We got, we got revenue goals. We all want to keep our jobs. We like working together. We like working here. Let's, uh, you know. Let's support each other and keep doing this. And I know some of the hours have been long. I can look and see, we're on Slack, right? So I can look and see, this person working work at 10 o'clock last night. Oh, man. All right, I can't pay you enough to work at 10 o'clock. I probably could. Golden cage. But if you discretionarily choose because it's important to you, because people depend on you, your colleagues and clients, and you're up at 10 o'clock working, oh, what, what else can I say? But I love you, you know, like I love that you are so invested in what we're doing, this dream we had to start a company. Man, I just can't pay you enough to do that. So am I going to help those people out? Am I going to, if they want to go to Google, am I going to write a letter for them? Absolutely, sure.
0: And what does the software company do? So we create the first
1: neuroscience as a service platform uh, in which we allow anybody to measure what the brain loves, any place people are in real time. So uh basically with all this uh research we did in the lab funded by DARPA and, and the US intelligence community and others, uh, we basically they're mapping between the value that your brain places on a social experience, could be a customer experience, advertisement, uh, training, education, uh, and those neuro- neurologic signals. So basically we pull data from people's smartwatches. From that, we can infer what the brain does from the activity of the cranial nerves, and we can measure in real time how much you value this experience. And when you value it, when your brain values it, you remember it, you act on it, you'll share it with others and you want to repeat it. Um, So that, again, because I'm a cheap bastard, that's our theme for today's uh, podcast. I'm a cheap bastard and I just hate to have bad customer experiences. 80% of movies, I live outside LA, 80% of movies for the last 30 years have lost money. How is that even possible with all the, the, uh, you know, economics, the accounting? How is it possible? It's because we have people who just think, well, I love this movie. It's cool for me. I can't imagine why these stupid people are not buying tickets, right? We're, we're not actually asking them the right question, which is what does the world really want from this as a movie or as an ad or as a trip to Disneyland, right? So anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a software that anyone
0: can use that democratizes neuroscience. Well, you know, we're instrumenting everything now and we're instrumenting the workplace. I talked to Ben Weber a couple months ago and he had the badges and and it was humanized and a bunch of other ways of trying to kind of keep tabs on people in the workforce. You know, with the whole quantified self, do you see a day when a company could kind of look at a dashboard and sort of see, oh, wow, you know, oxytocin levels are pretty low in marketing right now. We got to go do a ritual or man, what's going on with cortisol in supply chain? We got to go in there and do something over there. Do you think we'll have a way of measuring either through chemical measures or maybe facial expressions or, you know, will we have ways of being alerted kind of early on to organizational dysfunctions through things other than employee engagement surveys or same thing with customers? Can we pick up on this stuff before we we get, information from that promoter scores or these things are usually lagging indicators
1: oh man it's fun to be talking to someone who's so smart Greg exactly right so we have clients currently uh I, I'm not going to suppress their names but I'll, I'll be oblique and tell you who they are um, that use our technology exactly that to allow employees and their supervisors to uh, monitor whether you've created a um workplace that's psychologically safe, whether people are connecting effectively to each other. And so individuals can identify what they really dig doing, right? So again, most of us have lots of tasks we do during the day at work. But if I knew that these two or three are the stuff that really turned on my brain, give me more of that. Yeah. So it, it's really quantified self. And ultimately it's talking about emotional wellness. So what Immersion Neuroscience measures essentially is dopamine and oxytocin. Together, it's this very weird state I call immersion, in which you're just kind of sucked in, like almost like flow. You're so sucked in that you are just turned on. This is the the thing. If you knew that about yourself, think how valuable that is. But also from a workplace perspective, without any personal identifiable information, if I knew that, I don't know, the team in San Diego is just killing it, and I look at their immersion, they are into it. What's the manager doing in San Diego? Or what's special about these people? Maybe it's the sunshine. I don't know but give me more of that, right? Replicate that at my other location. So yeah, that's where we're going. And I think, you know, um, like counting steps was a kind of interesting 20th century quantification of self, but measuring what your brain loves, I think that's the future. So um, our expectation is that we're going to be native apps on Apple and all kinds of wearables so that everyone has the ability to find out what they love.
0: But I think in the book, you you cautioned against an overly explicit pursuit of happiness, right? And that by trying too hard, you might actually work in the opposite direction. So I guess we would have to look at kind of, you know, revealed preferences rather than stated preferences and uh, kind of trust that we're getting good guidance from the software that we're using rather than, you know, following what seems to be our subjective measure of happiness. It would be fair to say that, you know, this would be a tool to help us better understand what it is that really does make us engaged, fulfilled, and productive. A plus, I couldn't have said it better. Exactly right.
1: And to try new things that, you know, we don't, we don't always know what we enjoy doing. And, you know, when we do ratings like MPS or others, we say like, you know, compared to what, compared to my kids, It depends what day of the week we're talking about. Compared to my dog, my dog's perfect. I know how much I love my dog, right? He's sitting right here. He's perfect. So, you know, um, asking you how much I'm looking for a prop now, you know, how much I love my iPhone or something like, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 you know we're asking people to consciously report their unconscious emotional experience. Very difficult to do, but technology can do it. And I think that's again, I'm a tool guy. I just love making tools and to see people use this for emotional wellness in retirement homes to use it to help employees perform better, um, to help movie studios lose less money uh, or make more money. Man, that's awesome.
0: Great. Well, Paul, thanks so much for joining me. It's, it's been a while since uh, we've we've chatted. And hopefully we'll we'll chat again soon, but maybe next time in person. Let's do it We're for a beer. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at com.